never experienced anything like the conditions we are currently experiencing. I am mentally, spiritually, physically, emotionally, intellectually, and academically developed and acutely aware of the condition of African people throughout the entire world. fortune, we don't want popularity, we want power. Power. And power comes only from the organized masses. Welcome to another episode of 1919 Radio and the fourth and final episode of our Black Geographies podcast series. My name is Mohammed and I'm your host. In this episode, I sit down with Dr. Brian Jefferson, Associate Professor of Geography at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign and author of Digitize and Punish, Racial Criminalization in the Digital Age. Dr. Jefferson starts us off by walking me through the main arguments of his book, and we get into a wide-ranging discussion on racial capitalism, the relationship between computing technology and mass incarceration, surveillance and biometrics, Foucaultian biopolitics, and the meaning of necropolitics. We end off on a discussion of abolition as the only solution to digitized criminalization. I hope you enjoy the show. Can you start us off by walking us through the central arguments within your book? Yeah, yeah. The, the overarching um, argument uh, is that like all sort of government services, um, criminal justice is becoming computerized. Um, and as a result, uh, the ways that mass criminalization um, and the ways that people are excluded um, from uh, mainstream society for having things like criminal records, like the game is changing because the technology is changing. Uh, And one of the things that I'm really looking at is is sort of um, in the US, of course, we look at mass incarceration um, starting in the 80s up until recently. uh, And as many people know, like over two point, I think three million people were incarcerated, overwhelmed, over disproportionately black and Latinx. Um, And what I'm looking at is um, the way that that same regime Regime is adapting to the digital revolution and it's able to bring sort of different methods of punishing people, of detaining people uh, more out into the public, um, uh, into the public space, into public housing, um, into streets, into communities, into uh, educational facilities like uh, high schools in specific, um, but not only. Um, so through technology. Uh, so. For me, uh, the book is looking at sort of how the, t- the sort of wed the wedding of digital technology um, and mass criminalization uh, in this country uh, is transforming uh, the ways in which uh, we sort of penalize or surveil um, or sanction um, people of color, poor people of color, to such a disproportionate. Um, extent, and then one of the main and one of the main arguments is that this sort of shifts the game when it comes to abolition, activism, decarceration, decriminalization, immigrant rights, um, etc. You know the uh, the different sort of activist movements that are looking at people, groups of people who are punished and penalized um, disproportionately. Sort of what I was trying to say is, is you know, this is the, the the marriage of technology and these policies change the game. So they change sort of how we have to approach um, fighting it. 
and looking for it. So that, that would be the basic um, argument. My next question is, how do the racist logics of the past continue to persist? Yeah, so a lot of the work I was reading about algorithmic governance and about um, control society, which looks at how computers are changing the way that power operates. A lot of that work, especially from Western scholars and Western white scholars, um, argue that a lot of the, the sort of old categories um, by which people were um, organized or, or by which people were separated are starting to break down. And the basic argument is this, it's that, okay, Power doesn't just look at you because of your, your race. It could be your race, your gender, um, your, your credit score, your educational um, attainment, um, and it creates these profiles. And then, it, and then it operates on us on an individual basis. So when I said that, that line is, is trying to push back against the trend and say, no, like, um, first of all, all of those different categories are proxies of race, at least in the United States. They all share um, correlations, positive correlations or negative correlations with racial, with racial identification. Um, so that was sort of first the part of the argument. Um, the second part of the argument is uh, that, it, you know, if we think about it individualistically, then we sort of lose the ability to talk about um, group disparities. Uh, and in my opinion, politics is about group disparities. It's not about individuals, it's about groups. Um, and I think a lot of the sort of um, the algorithmic governance stuff, and, you know, even if you look at some arguments say there are no more individuals, they're just individuals, right? They're different data packets. And in my view, that's going too far, especially in the case that I'm looking at. Um, old categories, race, gender, um, nationality, uh, these things still weigh heavily upon the way people are treated, what opportunities they get, and their relation to the state. Um, so, you know, I, I just, at the, at the time, I felt there's a trend of, of um, a lot of more of the digital studies and algorithmic governance studies um, people uh, you know, in surveillance capitalism, in um, Zuboff's book, she says quite bluntly that race is no longer um, a, a major factor uh, in the way that power operates. You know, so, and, and, you know, so I, when I, that was really probably the line where I was like, oh, wait a second, like, you know, um, that's clearly not the case, right? Let's, uh, you know, so uh, that, that line is sort of trying to push back against uh, the idea that race is becoming less important or any, um, you know, like uh, religion is not becoming less important if you look around the world. Um, so a lot of those categories that come from um, colonialism, like indigenous people, right? They didn't call themselves indigenous. The Europeans called them indigenous. Black people, we didn't call ourselves black. They called us black, right? Et cetera, et cetera. Um, those categories are still alive and well. And what I was trying to do in the book is to not only say that the, it, the technology are, are used to reinforce those identities and the, and the divisions between those groups, but also to show empirically, look, I can crack open the algorithm and show you that it actually does have race in it. Um, so uh, I think uh, it's not even just having to say a racial, uh, racial logic. Race is literally programmed into the software I was looking at. What role does computer technology play in the rise of mass incarceration? given that the developments of early computer systems coincided with the beginning of the war on drugs in the 1970s? So 
mass incarceration, this might seem obvious, but, but then it just became more obvious in doing the research. It would not have been possible um, without, well, telecommunications infrastructures first, but then secondly, computer systems. Um, because one of the things that happened during, especially in the 80s, you start to see towards the mid to late 80s in the US is so many people are being incarcerated that um, the paper systems, file cabinet systems are being overloaded and you're getting these um, bottlenecks in courts um, as pretrial, but also in prisons, um, trying to keep inmates, um, all of their paperwork together. There's an overload because they're incarcerating so many people. So computer technology enabled um, coordination uh, on such a mass scale uh, of something like mass incarceration. Uh, first of all, that, that, that was sort of the first argument that um, I don't know that, well, if there was, if digital technology did not exist, mass incarceration would have looked different. Um, they, they kind of turned to it to save um, the system from collapsing because it was just, it was, it was becoming too big to make it more efficient, make it more cost-effective, et cetera. So, you know, that's the first thing um, with, with the computer technology. And then as we sort of, so that's like 80s, then as we shift more into the 90s, this is when big tech really starts, um, you know, rising uh, as, as one of the biggest uh, sectors in the economy. And, you know, th from there, the tech companies are, of course, coming to the authorities. Hey, we got this piece of technology. We got this piece of technology. Um, and, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book that a lot of the technologies that the companies were making were um, the research and development was funded by taxpayer money. Um, so, you know, it's not only that, um, the technology enabled uh, mass incarceration and mass criminalization, but also there's an economic incentive from the IT companies to perpetuate these systems because they have to buy cameras, they have to buy uh, offender databases and, and, and all the like. One fascinating element you describe within your book is the way in which smart city infrastructure is designed to allow cities to administer communities as carceral spaces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and this is, you know, there's a lot of great work on this. Um, but you, um, as sociologists, I think there's some some good sociology, and they talk about the how the prisonization of of um, communities, mostly um, low income Black and Latinx communities uh, in the U.S. And um, there's been a sense that in many different ways. Um, the communities are becoming more like prisons. Um, and a lot of the work that previously that I was reading, they were talking about the bars or the gates in public housing. Um, they were talking about um, little mini stations, police stations by poor public housing and these types of things. So what I was hoping to contribute was to show the, um, the infrastructure, the, te the technical infrastructure, the cables, the cameras, the satellites, et cetera. Uh, the, of course, the ankle bracelets, uh, the data centers, the, the real-time crime centers. And what I really wanted to do was, was trace in a very sort of, um, uh, you know, trace the actual infrastructure that was being and continues to be built up in these communities um, to, to, to sort of build off of this idea that they're becoming more um, like prisons. So, for instance, you know, a big thing, of course, is privacy when it comes to, to um, digital technology. And, you know, we get our 
a personal data stolen and they sell it to whoever. Um, but if you're in a very uh, a low income public housing unit, you know, in, in the communities I was looking at, um, you know, they have cameras inside their houses. Uh, inside their living spaces, sorry, inside the um, public housing units, right? In the hallways, um, they have ankle bracelets. Um, uh, and these technologies are what oftentimes they're becoming more and more automated. And what they do oftentimes is they can trigger an alert to the nearest squad car um, or something like that. To, and, and my argument is, you know, it, it makes it more like living in a prison. Um, so, you know, it... I'm looking at an application of digital technology that I think is is different than you know mainstream uh, a lot of mainstream concerns and at least in the U.S. Um, I'm looking at specifically how it impacts criminalized groups um, and it, you know one of the ways that it does is it it puts more of the, it it enables the authorities to have a tighter grip over people's living spaces over public space um, particularly poor people, and then also in financial sectors. What are the material impacts of digitization of penal records on former offenders and those in community with them? Yeah, and so that's connected to the, the previous question as well, uh, because now, you know, if you apply for a job, uh, employers oftentimes will do uh, background checks. Uh, and, you know, I learned a little bit about the background check industry, which is another sort of tech industry uh, that, that's a player in, in this story. Um, and what it does is, you know, if, if we go back to the 60s or the 70s, having a prison record was not as much as a scarlet letter as it is now. Like you could still possibly get work um, and you wouldn't be as ostracized as you might be now, because that mark is available for everybody to see. Um, so one of the things that the prison records does is it makes that person, it makes your um, identity as an ex-offender inescapable um, to, a, to a degree that I think um, that it has never been. Uh, and so again, so making one mistake, you know, getting one prison record, um, I think could be much more detrimental because it's publicly available, it's becoming increasingly publicly available. Um, and not only just prison records, I mean, a lot of, I don't know if it's the same in Canada, but I would imagine not because US is usually like the worst in these things, but um, like you don't even have to be, you could be arrested and not convicted and the newspapers will put your mugshots online. Um, so you don't even have to be convicted of a crime, but you can have a mugshot floating online. And then there are these other sort of parasitic companies that say, okay, pay me 2,000, 3,000, whatever dollars, and we'll scrape that information. Um, so the records and, and sort of the publicization of the records, it, it just, I think it deepens the stigma of having a criminal record. It deepens the stigma of having just been arrested, even if you didn't do anything. Um, and, and these are sort of the things And now the punishment may be, um, you can't get a job in some states like Illinois. You might not be. You might lose your eligibility for publicly funded housing. Um, you um, might not be able to go to universities. Um, so the publicization of the record and making them accessible through, you know, just a, a click of a couple buttons. Um, I, I think it, it it deepens the stigmatization and closes off more life opportunities. Um, you know, in a very alarming way. And so that's definitely something that I wanted to emphasize. 
In your book, you describe the Obama administration's response to the Ferguson uprising as a, quote, technophiliac version of Lyndon B. Johnson's response to the urban uprisings half a century prior. Can you compare the yeah, so one of the things in, in the book that I tried to emphasize, and especially, you know, obviously most of the people I interact with are, will be, of course, left leftists and, and activists. Um, and, you know, most people know this, but um, the, the story of, of, of the rise of, of, of mass incarceration is not just a story of you know, evil conservative white supremacists, right? Liberals have played a huge part in building it up. But Naomi Mirakawa's book talks about it really brilliantly. But um, so one of the things I wanted to emphasize was that liberals and liberal technocratic solutions to social problems is, is, is an old story in the U.S. And that even goes back to the early um, 1900s, using science and technology um, and, and thinking that if you um, that can solve a social problem like urban unrest, like poverty. Um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the point with that line was Lyndon B. Johnson was a president in the 60s. He was a Democrat. By modern standards, he would have been relatively, he, he was he was not a centrist. He would have been seen a little bit more to the left um, through his, his social programs, at least. And um, one of the things that he wanted to do was to, to use the emergency technologies at the time. So he opened this huge national agency, the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration. And it was the first time in the U.S. history that local police departments um, got equipment and were um, trained by um, a national agency. Um, and a lot of technologies um, like, uh, for instance, the dispatch, uh, automated dispatch um, comes through during that period. Um, a lot of the sort of stuff with community policing and mobilizing the community to be the ears and eyes of the streets um, and to extend the police um, vision, um, you know, that really starts to kick up in the 60s. And so, you know, looking at Obama, the thing is, you know, he's a big Silicon Valley president as the Democrats are. Um, and a very, I think, very stereotypical liberal in the sense that thinking that um, in perhaps over relying on technology and and you know introducing technology, whether it's for you know well intentions or not, but the, oftentimes has the effect of extending the government's reach um, when you when you introduce these technologies into people's private space. Yeah. So with that line, what I was really just trying to say was, look, this is a bipartisan monster that, that we built. Uh, so let's at least be accurate about it. Digitizing Punish makes clear the extent to which digital technologies have transformed and intensified the nature of carceral power. Can you highlight how the intersection of policing and data technology is impacting Black and Indigenous youth every day through unsuspecting means like social media, AI, and surveillance and web technologies. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's extending it. And so this is an, uh, an, uh, an interesting thing. At several times at conferences, I've had, well, they've always been white dudes. And they say, why, why are you only talking about uh, people of color? Why aren't you talking about anybody? Um, because why, you know, because the technology and the surveillance is spreading throughout all of society. Um, and I understand that. Uh, but my point is that the way the technology 
is being used. And the way that the digital surveillance is being used with respect to prime control policy, um, immigration policy, I have uh, you know, students doing that um, as well, is used in a very different way it because it's being used by police who are essentially a quasi-military institution. I, I've never heard of like a, a wealthy suburban area being surrounded by a quasi-military institution and putting cameras in people's living spaces, um, uh, you know, uh, with or without their consent. Um, so uh, when I'm looking at the sort of digital policing, it's in many ways, it's, it's moving the frontier, in my view, of carceral governance more and more into pri your private space. Um, rather than just a jail or a prison um, or a court. Um, it allows police to you know, stop you on the street and punch your information into a mobile phone, right? Which puts you in the system. And uh, so the technology, it's, it's an extension of criminal justice and the criminal justice system into people's homes. And, and that's the major thing. And, you know, I, I don't, I've learned not to predict anything after 2016, especially, <laughs> but, but um, so I'm not saying that the, that the mass imprisonment is just gonna, that it's inevitably gonna crumble, but um, looking at trends and, and tendencies, it, it seems that it's a, it's, it's a much cheaper um, cost-effective and perhaps even more efficient way to, um, uh, control people, control their mobility is to use technology rather than to put them in jail. Because uh, putting someone in jail in the U.S. is it's equivalent every year. You could send them to college for cheaper, right? So it's an uneconomical system, and I think that's not out of any morality or ethnic or ethical principles. Um, but I think because of money, I'm sort of anticipating more and more of a shift of, of, of mass incarceration um, from these traditional institutions into technology, uh, and, and, you know, via these various technologies. During last summer's rebellions, we saw a huge influx of police departments using surveillance cameras and cell phone data pings to track and capture protesters days and weeks after a protest. What impact do you see the rebellions of last summer having on the future of AI and racial digitization in no, it's a great question. I think uh, there will be multiple, I think, um, effects. Uh, one effect, I think on a positive note, is seeing the power of um, social networking and seeing the ability of, you know, a, a, an organization, which is BLM, which has exploded into a globally recognizable um, symbol that people with other struggles are able to identify with. Um, and making their struggles, making our struggles visible to one another, um, uh, creating the conditions in which we can build bridges across of our struggles. You, you know, that's what I think the, the major upshot of, of this last round of rebellions is, right? You had people, um, you know, there's Hong Kong people, had, you were protesters, um, were waving BLM, right? Um, and then we got to see what they were doing, right? And, um, um, through the technology. And, and so I, I would, the, if, if there's any sort the hopeful part of me would like to think that that creates a new sort of playing field 
for us to cooperate to to um to try to create more just and democratic and equitable institutions. Um, the, the bad part is um, the surveillance will continue to extend um, and privacy will continue, I think, to be sacrificed. And what you post on social media and what you post on, and perhaps what you email, like what you text, um, these things more and more, well, they already are um, accessible by the state. Um, so, you know, I think when we think of activism and especially, you know, if, if you're an activist and, uh, you know, uh, you know, radical left wing or even liberal activist, I think you're always positioned against the status quo. I think that's sort of part of that comes with the territory. So as the surveillance expands, I think that there's this cat and mouse game of, of activists are going to have to come up with, you know, new ways of skirting. Um, the dragnet, new ways of getting around um, their surveillance. Um, but I think that's all, I, you know, I, I am a firm believer that politics is never over. As long as you're a human and you're alive, there's going to be politics and, and there's going to be power and there are going to be unequal relations. Um, and those relations are maintained by different tools. And I mean, this is sort of, I guess, the bigger part, the bigger argument of the book, which is not groundbreaking or anything, but the tools are changing. So the strategies of, of um, I think, trying to to circumvent them um, have to change as well. Is there anything we could do to mitigate our vulnerability? I don't use social media. <laughs> I, mean, that's, I mean, you could do that, but um, it's the surveillance state is affecting in a, in a let's say in the U.S. Or, or in Canada. I would I would imagine it's affecting everyone. Um, you know, rich, poor, indigenous, white, whatever. Um, so, you know, all of our privacy is, is being um, sacrificed. So, you know, I think uh, one of the ways that to try to um, push back is to link these struggles against um, the extension of surveillance. Um, and for some people, it's about personal data and Facebook. For others, it might be they, they're forced to wear an ankle bracelet. These are very different circumstances and very different histories. But, you know, I'm just a firm believer in the way that you fight against powers through numbers. Um, and is through finding um, common ground with different people. Uh, and I think, at least in academia, there's such an emphasis on difference, 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 uh, that it becomes almost difficult for us to come up with a vocabulary to talk about um, equivalent and what we have in common, right? What, do, what does um, you know, a, a poor black kid in Chicago have in common um, you know, with a with a, a peasant worker in India, a Muslim um, peasant worker in India, right? Of course, they're completely different histories, and we can't use the same terminology. Um, but what we can do is, is we can look at um, their struggles and the ways in which technology is being used. You know, I, I read a little bit about um, Adhar. Um, you know, the, the technology is being used essentially on marginalized people, and perhaps. Um, to think of ways that we can build. Um, and, you know, obviously we can't use class anymore as, as a single category that didn't work. So it has to be something different, but I don't think we should give up on the efforts to try to link ourselves across our differences um, because differences are important. Um, but if we only see differences, then there's no incentive to, to, to link with one another. And if we don't link with one another, then the divide and conquer, I think, uh, wins. Um, what is the relationship between uh, information or IT capital and racial capitalism broadly? 
How do you use a racial capitalism framework um, in your work? So I'll start, you know, by saying, for me again, it's W. B. Du Bois, Ruthie Gilmore, um, Cedric Robertson, Clyde Woods, um, Angela Davis. Uh, it to me, these are the thinkers that they created the framework for um, what we call racial capitalism. When it, ha you know, in many ways, among other people, but for me, these are the influential people, given the demographic groups that I'm looking at, um, and what they do is they look at the relation between different sectors of the economy and how they benefit from racism. Um, indigenous scholars, settler colonial theorists um, do similar things, right? And there it's anti-indigenous um, policies and, and practices and how people make money from that, um, to put it in the simplest terms. Um, so it's in the US, it's obvious how the agricultural industry made money from racism during slavery. Um, Gilmore does a great job, um, uh, you know, of course, the, probably the best at looking at how the industrial sector benefited from racism um, in, in the US. So for me, I just wanted to like take their model and, and you know, the agriculture industry, there's a lot of great work on um, real estate and housing and, you know, and racism. So I was just wanted to look at the IT sector and essentially, Silicon Valley, and how does it benefit from racism and racist policies? Um, and the argument in the book is that um, it benefits, they want to sell cameras, they want to sell whoever makes the ankle bracelets, um, Taser International, I think, um, or they make cameras. Uh, like, whoever makes this equipment, they want to sell it because they make money. So if there's a policy that we should um, flood a certain community with patrol officers, um, or segregate a certain community, that's an opportunity for them to make money. So for me, when you, the question of racial capitalism and information capitalism, my question is just how have has the IT sector made money from um, ra off of racism, right? And I, I could look at it primarily through black people in cities, but you can look at indigenous people, you can look of course immigrants, um, Etc. You could look at Islamophobia, um, all of these different um, expressions of, of of discrimination, and just look how have they made money off of it. And so, one of the interesting things was um, a lot of uh, well, not a lot of, but a handful of IT people um, have been going back and forth. Well, when I was first doing my work, and and they were saying, "Oh, we don't cause uh, racism. Uh, we don't cause you know," and I. I've, my response was, I never said you were causing it. I'm just saying you're making money off of it. Like, like you know, and they'll throw all these like equations at you, that, you know, they try to, I'm like, I don't care what the equation says. I'm saying, I have studied the, the history of criminal justice in this country. And, and I have the data to show that, you know, you don't even need to make an argument to show it's racist. I mean, in Chicago, 88% of all people like arrested for marijuana one year were Black or Latinx. Like, I don't need, you know, you don't have to be a huge theorist um, uh, to come to the conclusion that there's, that, that it's, it's a racist policy. So my whole point was, well, if you gave them the equipment to enact those policies, then you maybe you should take self-responsibility um, to some extent. Um, and, and so racial capitalism and IT capitalism or information capitalism to me, in the simplest terms is how has uh, the IT sector and IT companies benefited, in my case, from the war on crime and war on drugs. Digitize and punish is an obvious wordplay on the book Discipline and Punish by French philosopher Michel Foucault. Can you talk about a bit about his work? 
It's funny, when I was writing it, I refused to read it because I didn't want it to influence me, but I already read it in grad school and I was rereading it. I was like, damn, man, this like completely, like, I didn't, you know, just sort of like, but so Foucault is super important in many ways um, in terms of, you know, I think his insights, but also his shortcomings um, for me. Um, so of course, you know, Foucault was one of the early people to talk about discipline seeping out into public space. Um, and he talked about, you know, discipline, um, not only being in the prison, but also being in the educational system. And then he looked in the medical industry, uh, you know, and he, he looked at um, all different types of the, of, uh, the barracks, the military barracks, and the ways that these sort of disciplinary techniques spread out into society, and to not only focus on the institutions, the prison, right? Um, so he really gives this powerful vision, okay, don't just focus on the prison. So in terms of my work, that's what I, you know, I'm looking at how the sort of, um, the functions that the prison um, performs from a, from a political economy standpoint, from a social standpoint, are being sort of exported via tech, uh, uh, technology. So, you know, that's in terms of Foucault, like um, sort of giving the paradigm, the model for the main argument. Um, but his shortcomings, in my view, are, well, he's Eurocentric. <laughs> so so uh, is that, you know, of course, in Discipline and Punish, one of the key arguments was that power needn't rely on violence as much um, because it's able through these micro-political techniques to, to shape your subjectivity. And, it's a, it, and it does it through knowledge production, um, which, you know, so many people write about. Um, and so for me, the argument was by the group I'm looking at, um, these practices are seeping out into society more and more, like he said, but I definitely wouldn't say they're becoming less violent. Um, you know, one thing. And so I'm trying to show how like the discipline seeping out, you know, uh, it not only sort of creates all these practices that, that people are constantly subjected to, to be a good citizen, a law-abiding citizen or, or something like that, um, but how it's connected in the case of my work to like, again, the, a quasi-military apparatus. Um, so those shortcomings, and, and that was really, if, if you've read Joy James's, um, uh, she's, oh my God, this book, um, um, it's called uh, the Erasing the Spectacle of Racialized Violence, uh, uh, or is it was her essay? And that really, that, that gave me, she makes this argument that I just actually said, so I'm, I'm taking from Joy James. Um, Right. And, and, you know, Foucault, of course, is a huge thinker, hugely influential in American and U.S. academia. Um, even if you haven't read Foucault, I hear people, like oftentimes people are, are repeating Foucaultian arguments. Um, I've heard people say we can't um, we can't read white male theory, white male totalizing theory because power knowledge is everywhere. <laughs> like, dude, you're just repeating Foucault. He's white the last time I checked. Um, but uh, so like he's had, of course, a huge impact. Um, and and one of the things I think that his legacy is we look at knowledge production and power way more. Um, we look at these insidious um, everyday micro techniques of, um, uh, of discipline um, more. But here comes Joy James and she says, wait a second, this is applicable to you know, your, your, your white male or perhaps female citizen in mainstream society, right? Um, she says this, uh, it, while Foucault was writing Discipline and Punish, you know, Attica prison, you know, is, is um, a prison, uh, a prisoner uprising. Um, 
you know, resulting in, um, I forget the exact numbers, um, but, you know, the state essentially coming in and, and, and mowing down some of the uprisings. Like this is happening at the same time that Foucault is, is writing this book. Um, and he was, he was blind to it. And there's a great anecdote of him meeting, um, I want to say Angela Davis um, in California and, and going to a prison and him realizing in the 80s, in the early 80s. Um, and, you know, he realized, oh, maybe I, maybe power isn't becoming less violent. Um, so, you know, the digitize and punish, you know, I figure it's, a, it's, you sort of get where I'm going with it from the title that, that it's about power seeping out into society. Um, but then also um, looking, I think, at, at a lot of, uh, well, it, it, Black U.S. scholars um, who have engaged with Foucault uh, and trying to build on their work as well. Um, you touch on uh, necropolitics in your work briefly. Um, can you explain what that is? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, uh, well, this brings us back to um, Foucault. So Foucault, of course, comes up with the, with the idea of biopolitics. Um, and, and what he's looking at is the way Western governments um, have taken on what um, we would call in the U.S. more some quality of life policies. Um, but not only quality of life policies, but things that are necessary for us as biological organisms. The, you know, the government being um, administering our access to food, um, um, health, uh, medicine, uh, and you know, the, all of these things that are necessary to us as biological organisms. And so his argument is that it's not just the old king who says, you know, if you defy me, I'll kill you. Right, which is essentially a negative power, the power to subtract someone's life. Biopolitics is more of a positive power to shape life um, through, um, you know, uh, uh, reproductive policies um, like like abortion. Right, the the government takes our biological existence as as a field um, of politics to intervene in. Necropolitics comes from Amembe, Akil Amembe, who's looking at colonialism. Uh, and again, just like Joy James, you know, it's, it's sort of the same thing. It's like, okay, those, all of those things that Foucault said definitely are true. Um, but, right, um, you know, and I understand his essay, well, his book, um, now it's a book that was originally an essay, to say, you know, the power to kill is still very central to uh, Western governance. Um, especially he's looking in colonies, um, uh, you know, during a similar time period, so that Foucault's looking at. So the necropolitics is the idea that, uh, from the way I'm using it is to say, look, these technologies are just another way of ensuring that um, poor black, brown, indigenous people are exposed to police officers, border patrol, more than your ordinary white citizen. And if these are quasi-military institutions, if, if the agents in border patrol or, or the police departments have guns, you know, and, and have the ability to kill you, um, the technology sort of maintains their um, expo differential exposure to these institutions. So in that way, it, it creates the context or it creates the conditions in which George Floyd is murdered. Um, to some extent, or reinforces them, right? It's not deterministic, but it maintains those conditions. Um, it, uh, it, it does its part, the technology. So 
you know, my the argument in the book was, was like this technology is not like a lot of the European and, and Anglo. I think um, theorists are saying making power necessarily less violent, more knowledge based, um, more insidious. It's also used to to track and target people and then to send, you know, what are, you know, patrol units on near them. And that puts their life at greater risk, right? Um, rather than another technique. So for instance, if there was another way of trying to address um, poverty and violent crime in the, in the communities that I'm looking at, because, you know, there are other ways of doing it, right? Educate, you know, uh, having educational policies, housing policies, job training policies, um, uh, you know, the, there are also grassroots ways of doing it, creating alternative ways of, of living and, and caring for one another, right? But the way we do it in the, in the States is, right, we punish them um, and, and we put, you know, the, 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 the sort of military or the violent branch of the state, we send them into the communities to fix the problem. And so when I say necropolitics, uh, what, I'm, what I'm saying is the technology aids that policy of punishing of surrounding um, and of using violence or the threat of violence to try to to try to remedy these social problems. Uh, your book ends with a statement that uh, to quote, if opposition to digitized modes of criminalization is to gain momentum, it must be abolitionist, unquote. What do you mean by this? And how can we put up an effective front against a digitized criminalization of blackness, black people and black communities? Mm -hmm. So, um, the, of course, abolitionism, you know, is, is become, um, you know, sort of a big, a big word. When I use it, I'm using it, um, how Angela Davis and Gilmore, um, I'm using it straight out of their books. And, and, and if we start with, uh, Angela, Angela Y. Davis, um, and she's looking at the prison industrial complex. And one of the things that she talks about is don't only look at the prison. Um, you also have to look at, you know, she goes into all the industries who, you know, who, um, what companies supply prisons with toilet paper? What you know, or with bed sheets, or 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 you know, with um um all the stuff, food, you know. And, and then she goes out beyond the prison, and and she says, okay, how is the medical institution or hospitals, or how is the educational system, such as the the school to prison pipeline, how are they also linked into the prison? And, and what she does is, is she she creates this sort of web. Um, of all of the different institutions and stakeholders um, who prop up uh, mass incarceration. Uh, and, uh, you know, for her, it's about not only just thinking about crime and punishment, but also medicine, healthcare, mental health, um, uh, you know, um, the uh, domestic abuse, domestic violence, like um, it, all of these things, how do they connect and how do we create an alternative division to deal with violent individuals, right? Many of which whom are, are mentally ill or suffer some mental illness. Like how, how do we find a non-punitive way to deal with a, a, a domestic, uh, a violent domestic partner um, without throw, throwing them in a cage, right? So abolitionism is first, I, I, as I understand it, and at least from the Davis um, perspective, is, is looking at the web of institutions and actors that prop up the, the carceral state. And so for me, I, I, there's a, a small um, hopeful contribution was to show the IT sector um, uh, in, in more detail. Um, but also it's important with abolitionism. And this is where I think the word um, uh, 
sort of can be misleading. She also says it's about creating alternative means, um, right? Because we still do need to protect, um, you know, battered um, spouses or, or partners. Yeah, yeah, we still need to um, ensure that if, you know, if there is a violent person um, that, you know, they're not able to harm their brothers or sisters. Um, so it's, but it's abolishing the way that we deal with those problems um, and trying to institute more life affirming ways. So, I mean, it's, it's of course an open-ended question. I would, I would say, or my answer, um, like, you know, what does that mean for us? One thing I, I also believe, you know, it's, it's very understandably um, common for academic, if you write an academic book, they say, okay, what's the solution to all of this terrible stuff you're talking about? And uh, it's completely, and I think that's a very good impulse. Um, I, I would sort of say that I wouldn't only look to academics for that answer. Um, I would look to communities, different communities are different. They have different local cultures, different local institutions. Um, and, you know, maybe dealing with spousal abuse in one community, there's there's one policy or or, or way of doing it in a, in a less um, punitive or damaging way than it is in another community. Um, but I, I just would say with the abolitionist framework, it, it's, you know, Going back to Davis, do we have to punish these people? Do we have to put them in cages? Um, are, are, are there ways that, um, you know, we can help, especially people with mental health issues or people, of course, who um, are in deep poverty, um, who, who might resort to, for instance, gangs or, or, or drug uh, markets, right, without putting them in cages and without punishing them. Um, so abolitionist thinking, in my view, is, is, is getting, doing away in this context of criminal justice with the idea that punishment is the first and perhaps only tool that you use um, to, to remedy these issues. Um, I don't think that any academic ha can give an answer to what um, will replace it. Um, but I don't think that um, we, um, just as people in general, um, Black people and, or otherwise, should have an expectation that, that, you know, one book can tell you what to do. Like, I think to, to find the answer, we're going to have to live the answer. Um, and it has to be trial and error. And some things will fail horribly. And some unintended um, things that work out will happen. But we, I think, you know, there will be instances if... if, if we do tear down and abolish the, the punitive system where things go horribly wrong and we might, and, and things might even be worse. Um, but the point is still pushing and still pushing um, uh, through trial and error to find, uh, you know, a more humane, um, oh, I think, way of, of dealing with a lot of the problems that are connected to, to, to poverty and, and uh, violence, at least, and, 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 and drug use, which are not, I'm sorry, but I should say, of course, which are not, um, limited to uh, black, brown, indigenous, poor communities, because in the US we see it now in rural white communities with um, the opioid epidemic um, and, you know, with militias who, well, are they're gangs as well. They, a lot, some function as gangs, like like the, the mobs that we saw, of course, on January 6th. So, but they're not, <laughs> we don't deal with their problems by, Putting a military in Iowa, <laughs> like, like to you know, to to crack down on you know on on the meth. Uh, uh, you know, of course, there are authorities, um, 
and they are getting higher incarceration rates. Um, but another thing you actually see in the U.S. is a lot the opioid epidemic. Um, there are a lot of stories of how police are trained, um, uh, given a little bit um, to give light medical treatment to opioid addicts, right? Yeah, so it's seen like, and we know like Portugal, for instance, like there are other ways to deal with drug um, abuse or, or drug addiction than punishment. Um, and, you know, maybe for when that question, how should we think about, um, you know, uh, alternatives, maybe we should look at how white people treat white people with the same problems to some extent, because um, they might have some good ideas too. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening along to the Black Geographies podcast series. It was a joy and honor to speak to each of the authors we welcomed onto our radio. I hope that you learned from the conversations just as much as I did. In other news, the 1919 Collective just put out our Abolitionist Arts and Writing Program, which is a fund for Black and Indigenous writers, artists, and cultural workers to create a series of work around abolition. Check out our website for more details and stay tuned for more radical and community-based content to be released all summer long.